I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Capitalism is the question in an occasional series of shows that we'll keep doing. This one starts with history and a puzzle. How much do good Americans really want to know? Do they need to know about slavery in the foundations of our wealth to this day? In the alliance of Lords of the Lash in the old cotton fields of Mississippi and the Lords of the Loom in the textile mill towns like Lawrence and Lowell, Massachusetts. Beyond that, what part of the privilege and prestige, the very purpose of an Ivy League education at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Brown, traces directly from their founding alliances with slavers and the slave economy? Our guests are point men in a sturdy movement by now among younger American historians to poke through the fog of euphemism, cover-up, denial, to grasp something of how we got here and where we're at, really, in our racial anxieties, our top-drawer contradictions, and our split-level, underperforming economy. We'll begin with Sven Beckert of Harvard, who has put child laborers, slaves, Bangladeshis in t-shirt factories today into his long biography of this unsinkable empire of cotton. Craig Wilder at MIT came out of graduate school with Sven Beckert. His acclaimed study, Ebony and Ivy, links slavery with elite education from the beginning, not just by the family networks and the money and the proud names that are still on the dormitories at Harvard, for example, but linked by their shared obsessions in the academy and in life with race and race science. His work, too, is about us and now and these institutions today. Sven Beckert, where do you want to take us? And why cotton to begin with? Why is that the only commodity that counts? Good evening, Chris. It's great to be here. Um, why cotton? I think uh, cotton is, uh, is, is, is important because looking at the long history of cotton and also looking at uh, cotton in the contemporary world allows me to understand the global history of capitalism. And capitalism in our world today is uh, one of the most important uh, facts. It, it structures our lives. It structures, uh, obviously, our e the economy. And it structures the globe as a whole. And as a historian, I wanted to understand how this capitalism developed uh, in the particular ways that it did. And it struck me that in order to do this, you need to have to, you need to start from, a, you need to take the globe as a whole. You can't understand capitalism by just looking at, uh, at one particular town or one region or even one country, but you have to look at it from a global perspective. And here, cotton is clearly at the center of the global economy for many, many centuries, and especially during the decisive moment of the Industrial Revolution, when uh, Europe and North America became much wealthier than the rest of the world. So looking at cotton allowed me, in a way, to get at what I think is the very core hmm. of the long history of capitalism. You write in the book that Europe really didn't know cotton to speak of. I mean, it was a wool world. And silk, if you could afford it, or linen. But they didn't really get interested until somewhere in the 18th century, maybe Liverpool, 1780, seems to be a, a moment. But when they could control the production entirely, they could monopolize it, they could, they could seize it, own it. Right, 
Right. So one of my core arguments is that exactly the, the, the modern world in which we live today, the modern world of industrial capitalism and constant productivity growth and constant economic growth, is not the world that primarily emerged at the moment when Europeans invented new kinds of machines. But it's a world that emerged much older and emerged out of Europeans' ability to structure global networks and global, uh, global uh, uh, relations of power. And, uh, and, and cotton it plays a particularly important role in that story because, uh, uh, as you just mentioned, cotton is, uh, is a stranger to Europe. It, it came relatively late to Europe. When it came, it came on, uh, on boats, uh, cotton cloth being imported from India. Um, and uh, Europeans only began to really manufacture cotton cloth in, in large quantities in the 18th century. And they were able to do so because at first they were uh, drawing on uh, markets that had already been created by the import of South Asian textiles uh, into Europe, but also into Africa. Uh, they were able to draw uh, on uh, South Asian technologies. And then they were able to draw on, um, on the, uh, for, the, for the growing of cotton, they were able to draw on the land that they had captured in the Americas and the uh, and the removal or, 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 or killing of, of the native peoples of, of the Americas. So they came to control a lot of land and uh, they came to control a lot of labor by the uh, uh, enslaving of, of Africans and bringing them to the New World. And it was exactly this ability of Europeans to structure global networks that later enabled them to also invest in new machines and then come to dominate the global networks of cotton production and with it, global capitalism. I mean, this is the moment when global capitalism as we know it emerged. There's a moment in your book and a moment in history where you write that slavery and the ability to take over the whole delta in Mississippi brought together all the forces. And it was force of settling the land, owning the 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 labor, and then driving it to plant and and harvest, and then eventually, of course, manufacture that cotton. Everything seemed to be connected there in the terms of the expanding global market, but the South, the climate, and most especially the the outright bondage. Right. So, so when we think about capitalism, I mean, if you ask most people on the street what 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 they think about when they think about capitalism, they will think about free labor, about wage labor. They will think about markets, they think about contracts, and they probably also think about human freedom and perhaps even democratic institutions. But if we actually look at the history of capitalism, we will see that uh, a, a very important part of its history uh, has nothing to do with free labor, with markets, with contracts, or with freedom, but just with the opposite, mm -hmm. with an enormous degree of violence and coercion. Uh, with the enslavement of, of, of millions of, of people, with the, uh, the expropriation of vast amounts of land and, of course, labor, uh, and the uh, very strong presence of uh, imperial states. And so uh, this is uh, as much uh, as part of a history of capitalism as, as the other history that we much prefer to remember, the history of free labor and contract and freedom and so on. Well, which leaves a lot out. Um, it moves. It's dynamic. It's, it comes to the United States not far from, from where we sit in Lowell. That's the big, the big capital of manufacture. But then eventually it goes south in the 20th century. Then it goes back to Asia. I keep wondering, and I still don't understand, what is it? What's the DNA? What's the, what is the driving motive energy inside this incredible machine? 
I mean, the, in the in the end, I think the driving uh, energy is is is, is twofold. There's, there's on the one hand uh, uh, that people, the people who own capital or continue to own capital, have an interest in investing that capital profitable to uh, to to increase the amount of capital that that they control, and that in itself is an never-ending expansive process because in the process of accumulation the amount of capital increases and of course it, it seeks out new investment uh, possibilities and in the uh, in the in the 19th uh, 19th century one of the most uh, profitable investment opportunities mm. that there was to be found anywhere in the world was to invest in the expansion of slave agriculture in the United States and indeed many European bankers took great advantage of this fact that the, the, the slavery in the United States expands and thrives uh, because it is able, because the, the, the slave owners of the South are able to draw on a vast influx of, of, of European capitals, of, of Dutch and, uh, and, and English but it's, bankers. It's, this is still a puzzle to me. It, it calls upon greed. It harnesses greed and racism and religion and nationalism and all kinds of forces. But what is the it? I, I'm still... Puzzling about that philosophically, it, it is something deep in the human organism to gather and produce and invent uh, and take advantage, and then hit the road again. I mean, I, I, I don't. I'm very suspicious of arguments that that find certain uh, tr- certain characteristics of economic behavior to be uh, to be to be natural or, or, or within the within the human DNA. I think this is all particular mm. to particular historical moments and. The history of the world in the in the centuries before the Industrial Revolution is is a history that is uh, of of slow economic growth, very little productivity growth. So the dynamics that we see unfolding uh, in the modern era with the with the transition to capitalism are certainly not the characteristics that we see in human behavior or in the organization of any economy before the modern era. But but I think what so 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 I, what I argue. No, that, uh, granted, but in in a way we've seen it ever since. It does mark the marketplace. I keep wondering, did it have to work that way? Did it have to be as cruel um, and as as wasteful? Not to mention as destructive of the environment. That's another whole matter. But did it have to work this way? You know, that's a very difficult uh, question, obviously, to to answer. And I think the only thing we know for certain is that it did work in the particular way that it it unfolded. And in the way Mm -hmm. it unfolded, it contained uh, all of these uh, th- these uh, these stories of of violence and coercion and imperialism uh, and slavery and, uh, and 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 obviously some of these stories in different forms continue to this day. I keep wondering: is there an antidote for it? Is there is there a response in in human equality or kindness, fraternity? I don't know. Uh, coming up, who knew that the first presidents of Harvard, like the first presidents of this country, owned slaves? And that Harvard houses and dormitories still have the names of big men from the slave economy on them. Craig Wilder makes the college connection with capitalism. But first, here is the voice of Fountain Hughes, one of the last men to work as a slave on American soil. His grandfather was owned by Thomas Jefferson. Here he is telling his own story back in 1949 to the Library of Congress. This is open source. They sell us like they sell horses and cows, and they put you on a, up on the auction bench and bid on you, the same as you're bidding on cattle, you know. Was that in Charlotte that you were a slave, or Charlottesville? That was in Charlottesville. If you were a good, good person, they wouldn't sell you. But if you were bad and mean, they didn't want to 
beat you and knock you around, they'd sell you to what called a nigger trader. Maybe $200, $100, If I thought that I'd ever be a slave again, I'd take a gun and just end it all right away. Because you're nothing but a dog. You're not a thing but a dog. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source, finding the roots of American capitalism in slavery with historians Sven Beckert of Harvard and Craig Wilder of MIT. Who knew that the haughtiest names in Puritan Boston had their personal slaves? Who knew that Cotton Mather, the fire and brimstone preacher, gifted his father with his own Negro? Market value, 50 English pounds. His given name was Onesimus. We learn this in our guest Craig Wilder's book, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of American Universities. It's about educational power and prestige at the service of a civilization built on bondage. It's an altogether humbling story, Craig Wilder. It's also, as you said to me, frighteningly contemporary. There was war capitalism, then there was industrial capitalism. But back in the old days, we, we know, for example, John Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony for the famous line that we shall build we shall build. We shall be as a city upon a hill. You have him celebrating the smallpox epidemic that was wiping out those bothersome Indians in the 17th century. You quote him saying, "God hath hereby cleared our title to this place." It's a it's a rapacious history. Yes, I wish you'd trace it from the 17th to the 18th into the 21st century as as part of our educational landscape, the most prestigious institutions in the world right here. Sure. You know, when I began the project, one of the things that sort of struck me was when you look at the history of New England and Virginia, um, within a decade of their arrival, the British colonists are actually planning colleges. And that seemed quite Mm. strange to me. It's fewer than 10 years that it takes them. Here in New England, the Puritans arrive in 1630. In 1636, Mm. they've got a charter. You know, um, in Virginia, they're there in 1607, and within a decade, they have a charter for what would have been the first Protestant college in the Americas, the Enrico County College that um, had been planned. The land, 20,000 acres of land had been given by the Crown and Parliament. Um, 300 people had been sent to work the lands. A rector had been selected, and an Indian mm-hmm. war breaks out and destroys that project. So Harvard ends up becoming the first school. But one of the things I took away from that was really I had to think about what was the in, why, why that investment in establishing a university, a college that early in the colonial history um, at a time when the Virginians and the New Englanders were actually having trouble with simple um, realities of colonial life like the you know, strategic and military defenses of their colonies. Um, and that's when I started thinking, well, well the university was actually part of that. Um, the college mm-hmm. was a site for actually um, launching and engaging in cultural warfare against Native people. It was part of the colonial project itself. And to remove it from that is actually to, in fact, to do a disservice to history um, because it distorts that past. And then when you move forward, my lesson from that moment was I really needed to look at each one of these centuries, at each one of these historical periods, and think about what, what's the thing that the reader really needs to know mm. 
about the role of colleges in that moment. Yeah, in the 18, by the 18th century, certainly, you know, the college is emerging as a central institution in both the defense and the um, in the defense of the slave trade and slavery. It's becoming a site for actually producing some of the arguments that defend slavery and the slave trade from a rising attack upon both of those institutions in the 18th century world. By the 19th century, it's critical to the Industrial Revolution, and part of mm. its role is actually to defend capital. Um, and it's defending its interest in that way, and I think there's a 20th, scientific bent by then. Sure, and that you know, and by the 20th century and the 21st century, you know, part of the role of the modern university is to reproduce the status quo, um, and we're actually really quite good at that, especially at elite institutions. Dare I ask what, what what's the job in the 21st century of these same these same institutions that that sort of certify what's what's good, what's rational, what's what's possible? For, for, for the elite? Oh, I mean, I, th- I think one of it is actually really to reproduce the status quo. It's one of the things that has sort of struck me about the um, behavior of universities and especially elite universities in my own lifetime um, is our, you know, our, our deep sort of ent- – the, the way that we're deeply entangled with many of the greatest social problems and not always on the right side of them. Hmm. Um, we're very often on the wrong side of them. It's fairly recently, in my experience, that people sort of notice where is the moral, where is the independent, where is the critical, critical thinking voice of of the university minds, not not their interests, but the 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 the, the, the brilliant people for whom you know, who justify their existence. Is this new or not? No, it's not. Yeah, I think one of the things that protects the university from real social critique and historical critique is that universities are the sites for producing their own histories. You know, the university mm. is in the unique position of actually writing the past that it exists in. And that has always served um, to give it a kind of um, a, a, a elevated spot in the discourse where we pretend that universities are separate from social reality and historical reality. They simply exist there as kind of you know um, objective observers of what's happening in the past, but they're not really responsible for that past. And part of the central, one of the central arguments in my book is that the university is bound up with that past, and it, it's messy, it's often ugly, but it's important for us to see. But let's remember also that I mean, that some people, it's not pure indoctrination, and it doesn't get everybody. I mean, I, in, in the nineteenth century, it was critically important. Henry David Thoreau made it through Harvard, class of eighteen thirty-seven, absolutely, and the the model of civil disobedience and abolitionism, and whatnot, and there were surely lots of people less less famous and less brilliant, but there. And yet, somehow, the emotional core of your book, if I may say, is in the story of a guy named George Fallon. Charles. Charles Fallon. Charles Fallon. Yeah. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, for whom Fallon Street in Cambridge mm-hmm. and I think two Fallen Streets in Boston are named. I wish you'd spell that out. He had an unusual and tragic and yeah. Let's think about Thoreau and Fallon because they're all actually contemporaneous. All that's happening at the same time. And in fact, not only on the Harvard campus, but also on campuses in New York, uh, what's now Hamilton University at at Amherst and at Williams at Yale, there's in fact a rising anti-slavery movement on all of those campuses. And the Fallon story tells us a lot about what happened to that Mm. civil disobedience on campus. Charles Fallon was a German immigrant who had actually escaped from um, revolutionary Germany um, and where he was being sort of um, persecuted um, for his own politics. He arrives in Philadelphia. There's a kind of happenstance meeting between him 
and uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, General Lafayette, who had mm. been invited by Congress back for the 50th anniversary of the American Revolution. <laughs> Lafayette runs into Fallon in Philadelphia and arranges to send him up to, through his biographer, George Tickner at Harvard, um, through Lafayette's biographer. Um, they actually arrange for a, um, a lectureship at Harvard. Um, he's eventually put in a professorship of the German language. He proves extraordinarily popular with students. And one of the great things about the Fallen story is you can actually follow what he taught in class. And you can mm. see some of his students, um, his their notebooks from that class. So you can also see what they their learned. Their ratings of their professors. And the, you know, the very radicalism that had actually you know, a, a shaped his career in Germany also shapes his career in the United States. He joins the anti-slavery movement. He becomes a key figure in the abolitionist society, and eventually Harvard actually begins to punish him for that. The the monies for his professorship are withdrawn. Um, He's actually forced out of Harvard. Mm. He goes to New York, and he sort of trains as a Unitarian minister, and from there builds a new church in New England. And then in an irony that connects our two stories, Sven is— Linger on his his dismissal from Harvard, and that was a very considered— Sort of committee decision, and all the great names, a lot of them it, tainted by it's, by yeah. the slave trade, uh, are against him, yeah. and they prevail. Yeah, it's it's right out of the uh, board of trustees minutes. You know, the the monies for the professorship had come from some very sensitive sources, including families that were deeply involved in the slave trade um, right through the early nineteenth century, mm. and whose interests continued to be bound up in both the cotton trades um, and slavery. Um, and so that withdrawal is actually very political. In fact, actually one of the interesting things that happens right mm. right after the meeting where they withdraw his professorship, the very next meeting of the trustees, they announced that George Tickner, the biographer, had actually submitted his resignation. Um, and there's not Good a lot of him. commentary on that, but Tickner actually makes a few comments about it in personal notes. And so it's quite clear that it's bound up with the fallen situation. I keep waiting for for outrages like that to be redressed or reconsidered or, or regretted. Um, Ruth Simmons as president of Brown University, who, as it happened, was a black woman, a uh, chance to, to start a, a major introspection, a sort of examination of conscience at Brown about its own slave roots. Is that possible at Harvard? Will, will, will uh, Brother Fallon ever be vindicated? Well, you know, think about what happened to Fallon. You know, Fallon goes to New York. He trains as a Unitarian minister. He comes back to New England. He's coming back to actually take the pastorship of a church on a ship crossing Long Island Sound where cotton stored on board, you know, slave-grown cotton steaming mm. toward free New England, um, is stored too close to a smoke pipe. It catches fire. The ship catches fire. And Fallen dies on that ship. In the aftermath of that tragic death, there are some attempts to sort of clean up the relationship between Harvard and Fallen. Um, and there's some sense that, you know, of paying a kind of debt to Fallen's memory. Mm. There's some statements of regret that come from a few administrators. Um, it certainly does also give some new energy to the abolitionist. But the real challenge of the Ruth Simmons moment is not only that she had the courage to really look at Brown's relationship to slavery and the slave trade. But one of the things that was telling to me is that in the aftermath of Brown's report in 2006, none of Brown's peer institutions took the same step. You know, and in fact, actually, if you look at the campuses, what really happened on those campuses were grassroots movements of faculty, graduate students, undergraduate students, senior theses, librarians, and archivists who began to explore the relationship between these individual universities and slavery. Sven Beckert's course on Harvard and slavery, for instance, um, kept this story going for the next few years. Um, and it took a long time for the administrations to catch up. But let me ask, I mean, is Drew Faust, the president of Harvard... Civil War historian, is she 
ready to to look further? Is she under pressure not to? You know, I think it's difficult. When you think about all of the presidents, I won't even individualize it. I think when you think about all of the university presidents today of the elite universities in the United States, one of the major pressures on them um, is fundraising, development. Um, and, you know, and in that world, it's very difficult to take up things that are difficult social questions and potentially controversial. And so it's much easier to delegate that responsibility to faculty, independent scholars, and to the scholarly world and to say that you're doing your job because you've created open access to the sources. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's the moral responsibility of institutions to examine their own history, especially when they um, claim that they exist for the pursuit of truth and to um, deliver, in fact, real mm-hmm. social benefits to the greater public. So, Berkert, I wonder, I mean, the, the fallen story, and it's a heartbreaker, is still sort of university politics. Uh, does it fit in your... In your framework, though, of the way capitalism works. No, I think it does fit in, in, in a couple of ways. I mean, for one, it, I think it speaks to the fact that, that New England, even though by the, uh, by the 1840s and 1850s, New England did not have slavery anymore in, in its own uh, land, but, but, but it was still tightly linked to the slave economy of the American South and the Caribbean. And therefore, slavery remained a very touchy issue to the elites of New England, including the elites who came to run Harvard University. And indeed, many of them were directly implicated in the trade of uh, agricultural commodities grown by slave slaves, um, uh, also in the slave trade. And then especially in the investment in cotton manufacturing enterprises that drew on the slave-grown cotton from the American from the American South. But I, but I think what's also really striking about this story about how American elite universities have dealt with the history of slavery is that in a, in a way you could think, okay, this is, you know, slavery was abolished in the United States in 1865. That's now approximately 150 years ago. That's a long time. Nobody who is alive today is, uh, is, is, is directly personally responsible for, for, for the history of, of slavery. But still, somehow slavery is still so close to us that we can't actually face its history which I find uh, it, it testifies uh, to, the, to the continued importance of, of slavery, but I think makes it, as, as Greg sa- says, it makes it the, 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 the moral responsibility of, of our time as well to face that history, and universities should be the first institutions who are embracing uh, that confrontation with, with their own past. But, 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 but as Greg just mentioned, obviously it is very difficult for them to do so. Go back one step. Could we have had the marvels of cotton... In, in all its in its inexpensive T-shirt, uh, elegant, colorful varieties, could we have had that miracle of that commodity without slavery? You know, again, that's a difficult question to answer because we the the, the way how that uh, the history unfolded was obviously with slavery at its very core. But but I think uh, the, the 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 problem of the of the late 18th century European cotton industry was to secure huge quantities of inexpensive cotton for these suddenly much more productive machines and for these vast markets that they had captured in Africa, Asia, Europe, and elsewhere. And at this point, it was very difficult for European uh, governments or for European um, merchants to transform uh, peasant agriculture in places such as India, West Africa, 
or the Ottoman Empire, and so they they they, they turned to the Americas and they turned to, the, to to slavery because this was the one way how they were able to secure the land and the labor to uh, to 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 grow ever more uh, cotton at at ever cheaper prices. The the price of cotton in the 19th century falls quite significantly. That allows these manufacturers to be ever more competitive on world markets. That allows them to destroy the home spinning and handloom weaving in, in places such as South Asia and West Africa and, and elsewhere. Different subject. You men are both sort of stars in this expanding field of, of um, capitalist history, the history of, of this beast. Um, and, and, and not to put it down either, but um, make the case, if you will, for history as a way of getting to know something as opposed to all the other ways we hear about our economy in the day-to-day statistics, the stock market or the unemployment rate or, or whatnot. It, it, it's, it's a revelation and it's exciting to see, see these long-term narratives. But, but tell us what you're doing and is this an opportunity? I mean, first of all, Thomas Piketty has said he thought of his book on capital as as much history as economics, and he says it's a, he didn't say disgrace, it's an embarrassment that economists have spent so much time in their arcane mathematics so far from the human story or the whole picture. Make a case for for what you guys are trying to do. You know, I I think historians become historians for different reasons, but Sven and I both actually spent more than a decade on these books, um, and in, in fact actually joked with and competed with each other for how long it would take us. Um, to finish these projects. And one of the reasons why you make that investment is I think that history actually has answers to social questions and um, and pressing social crises um, that we need to address. As Fenn said, you know, you, at some point in time, you have to turn and face that past. And there is, in fact, I think a kind of emotional and guttural reaction to the history of slavery 150 years after its demise. Um, that continues to haunt Americans. And I would argue that part of that is actually that the story of slavery disturbs a central narrative um, that we've all come to um, Mm -hmm. sort of embrace in some way, shape, or form. Um, It places, for instance, Native Americans and African Americans as central to the story of uh, the rising American empire. And that's difficult to actually, you know, uh, put in harmony with the other things that we choose to believe about ourselves. But in fact, that's where the answers to our real social questions are. But it's, there's, there's another angle here, and I think it's part of your opportunity. After the 0708 um, meltdown, whatever we call it, people are scratching their heads and saying, wait a second, remind me, what, what, what's so perfect? What's so eternal? What's so God-given you know, from Sinai about this system? And can't we tweak it without being called commies or socialists even? Can't we complain and no more? Right. I mean, look. I think first to, to to answer your previous question, I think it's it's. I think historians have a have a great responsibility and also the opportunity to speak to the question of the long history of economic change in ways that is quite different from how economists speak to them. I mean, as you mentioned, economists often, not always, but often try to find kind of general laws that explain how particular people uh, relate in market economies. And they also try to uh, use mathematical uh, tools to, to answer these questions. And I think historians have a, a, a historical view of capitalism. They, they actually look at, at capitalism in action, how capitalism actually unfolded. Mm-hmm. And that tells a story about capitalism that is quite different than the one that we learned from the business pages of, of some newspapers. We're talking about the braided history of cotton, capitalism, slavery, and also educational privilege. Coming up, what might, what should, 
what could it mean for an Ivy Leaguer putting on a new Uniqlo T-shirt or looking at the bargain clothes at H&M or Forever 21? I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Here was President Obama two years ago on the slavery that abides. But around the world, there's no denying the awful reality. When a man desperate for work finds himself in a factory or on a fishing boat or in a field, working, toiling for little or no pay and beaten if he tries to escape, that is slavery. When a woman is locked in a sweatshop or trapped in a home as a domestic servant, alone and abused and incapable of leaving, that's slavery. Craig Wilder of MIT, author of Ebony and Ivy. Sven Beckert of Harvard, author of Empire of Cotton. Can we take that straight about slavery in the modern world today? Sure. I, I think one of the things that that actually reminds me of is actually what Sven said earlier, you know, that the history of um, brutal economic relationships, um, free economic relationships, has always been, in fact, wrapped up with the history of capitalism um, from its very origins, and it continues today. Sven? Right. I, 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 I very much agree with that. The violence and coercion certainly persist very much in the contemporary uh, economy. And in some ways, I think that also relates to the issue that we discussed earlier about the, the, the university and it, its uh, unwillingness to, to face its own past. Uh, I think we, we because our our vision is, is limited, we look around the world in which we live and we see certain things, but there are many things happening in the world that we cannot see with our own eyes. And uh, and I think there is a lot of pr- brutality in, in, in labor relations, for example, in much of the world that we you know, only see at moments when there are great catastrophes. But I still think that plantation slavery as it unfolded in the Americas in the 19th century or in the 18th century is something that is quite different from, you know, let's say women workers in Bangladesh locked into a factory. I mean, I don't want to diminish the, the, the terrible nature of, the, of, the, of their work experiences, but I think there is something really fundamentally different between that and, uh, and, uh, and uh, enslaving uh, an entire people for, for centuries. Yes, but... As you wrote, Sven Beckert, cotton production itself is still, you said, an often brutal ordeal, and it drives farmers in the hundreds, maybe thousands, into debt and despair to suicide. At the end of your book, you write, the empire of cotton has continued, and this is just cotton, continued to facilitate a giant race to the bottom, limited only by the spatial constraints of the planet. If we could find other planets, we'd, we'd, we'd take it there. But... I, I, I want to use both of your books as a kind of consciousness-raising exercise. What is it that we are euphemizing in this world today? What uh, what is the other? What are the other commodities and the other kinds of suffering um, comparable to the, the centrality of cotton in, 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 that you wrote about? It, it, surely the, the the central commodity today is oil, but you could also say, let's talk about drugs. Let's talk about corn or or human trafficking. Maybe maybe bananas. That's never been easy to produce, um, or maybe it's you know the the phone making capital of the world, Foxconn in in China. I want you to raise our consciousness about what we should be paying to paying attention to today. Let me let me also yeah I want to affirm Sven's point. I, I actually think that it's uh, historians are always going to argue for historical specificity and and you know, if everything is slavery, nothing slavery, and so we always want to be careful about that. But um, one of the things to answer your question directly that I think this history tells us and actually begins to reveal to us 
is that the history of the marketplace, um, markets also hide us, um, shield us from the moral consequences of much mm-hmm. of our economic behavior. That's true in the 17th and 18th century, and it's true in the 21st century. Um, we walk into stores, and we're actually shielded from the the, re, the social realities of production. Yeah. Um, that's also true in the 18th century world. You know, one of the realities for you know the, one of the reasons why the arguments against slavery and the arguments against the slave trade took the form that they did. Often, in fact, for instance, introducing evidence of the inhumanity and the brutality of these trades wasn't that the uh, world didn't know, the Western world didn't know that those trades were inhumane. It was actually that the market tended to shield us from any direct contact with that reality. We could hide from it and pretend it wasn't there. The market shields us, we shield it ourselves. I, right. I, I, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, no, we're complicit in it. We're absolutely <laughs> we, complicit and, in and, it. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Let me speak for myself. I see those. Uniqlo uh, T-shirts. The colors are fantastic. The V-neck thing is just right. The price is incredibly low, and I buy it. And then I, I don't think, as obviously I should. Wait a sec. Who's paying for this, and who's who's suffering for my whim? So your T-shirt, for example, the cotton that went into that T-shirt might have been harvested by children in Uzbekistan who were forced to do so. Uh, it might have uh, worked up, uh, been worked up into thread and spun into fabric by uh, very poorly paid uh, workers in uh, China and then uh, stitched together into clothing by uh, workers in Bangladesh who work uh, under really impossible conditions at a great risk to their own uh, health. And that explains why the T-shirt that you're going to buy at some stores is going to cost you just 4 or $5. What about the people who make phones? You know, for the that absolutely marvelous design that Steve Jobs has left us. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what the work conditions are in 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 Chinese factories producing iPhones, but um, but I, I, I can't. You I, can. the, you know, the reports have been horrific, but yeah, I, I don't. I, it's not what I study directly, but yeah. It, you can. Any of us can yeah. go to YouTube and put in Bangladesh textiles, yeah. and you can see inside. These mills, they're humming at an incredible rate. They're dark. Um, it's hard to measure the danger. But we can know if we want to know. But, but, but I think we should also see that it, 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 so, so I don't think all of it, it, it we, I don't think we should draw a picture of the, of the world that is all but, but, but hopeless. Because I think there are moments when uh, oh. people have actually in, uh, the, in, been able to improve their, 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 their conditions. They have uh, mobilized collectively. They have formed trade unions. They have formed political parties to advocate for their interests. Uh, and they sometimes were able to, uh, to persuade states to create uh, welfare systems that, that improved their situations. Uh, so, so that, that, you know, they, they are, they, there is great misery in the world, but, but there's certainly also people, sometimes people who are very, with very little social power actually have managed to generate very significant transformations. And I think in a way the best example for that is uh, the struggle during the American Civil War itself when, uh, when many enslaved Americans managed to make this war uh, a war of their liberation. The heroes in your book, if I may say, are the people who from time to time all over the place Come forward with, with outrage. There's a there's a girl. I think her name was Ellen Hooten, right. in Manchester, maybe, eight or ten years old. Tell that story and how somebody made an issue of what was being done to this child. Yes. Yeah, so Ellen Hooten was a, a, a girl who uh, came from very very poor parents, and when she turned eight, she was like many other children at this uh, time 
was uh, uh, sent by her mother to work in a cotton textile factory. And uh, uh, she somehow did not perform the task satisfactorily. And uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the her overseer uh, um, uh, penalized her by... Uh, by putting a, a, a piece of heavy iron around uh, around her neck, so this was mm. a form of, uh, of 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 torture, and uh, she ran away. And eventually, a group of uh, middle class citizens from Manchester investigated this case because they thought it constituted a form of uh, of child slavery. You told the fallen story, Craig. I mean, who are the other voices that you just want to? You want to clone. You want to learn about and and be led by. The, you know, there are a lot of them. I think you know uh, he doesn't show up much in my book, but John Wesley, you know, the founder of Methodism, has a fascinating mm. moment with the history of slavery in seventeen seventy six. It was seventeen seventy four when he writes his thoughts upon slavery, and one of the things that he argues in that short uh, pamphlet uh, is that England's investment in slavery and the slave trade had brought about the moral ruin of the nation. And he, he actually writes mm. something along the lines of it would be better that all of England's possessions in the Americas sink into the sea than that they be cultivated at so high a cost to human dignity and, and moral justice. You know, that through one of the things that I really wrestled with in the book and I wanted readers to see was that there was in fact always a critique of slavery in the slave trade. Yes. Um, and one of the things that happened on campus, you know, when you're talking about Charles Fallon, the real lesson for me of what happened to Fallon at Harvard was that it was precisely the entanglement of the university with slavery that led university administrations and trustees to act aggressively against mm. students and faculty who dared to question the institution. And it happens over and over again on campuses in the 1830s. There's a kind of, should we say, focused moral energy in both of these books. I mean, it's real history, but it, it's asking us to do something. And I wonder just what, other than wake up, Wake, you know, <laughs> you know, don't don't buy the hype, uh, don't buy the Uniqlo ads necessarily. But then what? In the way of politics, in the way of reform, in the way of repentance, what 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 do you want your readers to be doing, Sven? That's a, an excellent question. That is unfortunately very difficult to answer. But but I think. I, I think the first thing I would my, like my readers to do is to is to just uh, to, to come to an understanding of how the world emerged in which we live today, and to face uh, to face the consequences of this uh, long long history. And um, and I think it does give uh, perhaps readers a sense that there are possibilities, as I mentioned earlier, there are possibilities for. Uh, change to take place, and often uh, that uh, calls upon very courageous individuals like the ones we just heard in in Craig's story. Uh, and sometimes it it it, it means that uh, that people need to organize uh, collectively in trade unions and other such institutions to improve their 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 situation. So so. You know, I'd, unfortunately, there is not an easy story, and in some ways, the, the the history that I tell is 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 a dark one. It's it's one that not easily lends itself to hope. And if you look at the world today, as you mentioned, you know, if you look at the distant parts of the world, things uh, are sometimes uh, 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 um, difficult. But but if you look at you know, if you look here, right at the United States, you see rising inequality. You see the mass imprisonment of poor people. You see. Um, uh, you see homelessness. I mean, there are you know things right in front of our doorsteps, so to speak, and uh, and we are not doing a particularly good good job uh, to, to, to handling those problems. Craig Weller, what do you want your readers to do? 
You know, I, I think for me there, there's a truer, there's a more painful, complicated, and difficult but honest um, view of the past that's the real foundation for political and social discussions today. Um, and until we actually wrestle with that past, mm. we can't wrestle with contemporary problems Where very honestly begin? or efficiently. Um, well, I think you know, a lot of things that we've been talking about, you know, economic inequality, um, questions of social injustice, the criminalization of the poor are, you know, are current phenomena that are actually rooted in our history. And until we actually address that reality, what we end up doing is actually having a conversation about nothing rather than a conversation about reality. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, having worked in, in journalism all my life, uh, I keep wondering why is the public discussion, including the political discussion, so sort of benighted? Think of all the chin-wagging wasted around that silly instance of, I made this, you know, in, in the presidential campaign. Did I make this company or did I not? I mean, why why don't we have in every public conversation, a, a more, you know, real understanding of a, of a big universe of education and training and technology and investment that uh, nobody makes anything in that sort of individual way. And we're not even beginning to approach what has to be done to make it fairer, to make it more representative, closer to what we we, we, we yeah. insist you know, on. I think, I think scholars can often make the mistake of imagining that we're more important than we are to social realities. In fact, that's somewhat seductive in academia. But one of the things that I think is true is that, you know, for Sven's book, for my book, for a lot of the recent work on slavery, on the history of capitalism and the early history of the United States, there's a growing audience for a different kind of conversation that has made our projects possible. And I think part of that is Where do you find it? Well, you know, I I think both in the, you know, the willingness of publishers to take up very different kinds of projects, um, to actually sustain them over long periods of time. These are long research projects. They're in-depth research projects. You know, his is a a, a very serious study of cotton. Um, You know, there's no there's no playing around there. Um, And so and I think that there's a different um, public appetite for some of these conversations. And so when I'm actually thinking about what's hopeful in these discussions, you know, my, hmm. my book isn't a book that actually leaves you feeling great about the world either um, <laughs> at the end of it. But what I am hopeful about is that actually looking over the past decade um, in Europe and in the United States, there's been, in fact, an increasing audience for a more complicated, honest, and difficult discussion of the past than has been there before. I don't think that we're, you know, I don't think we're a, a nation that... Um, is anti-intellectual. I think we're a nation that has a convenient habit of blinding ourselves at long con- moments um, when, in fact, that's consistent with our, our material interest. Um, I think those interests have started to change. You know, I think 40 years of income inequality and growing disparities, um, a, a shrinking middle class and an increasingly desperate working class have simply changed the public appetite for what kinds of intellectual conversations we need and we want. Hmm. Right, and I think then the history of of uh, that, that that we are trying to write here is 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 of of of, of great political relevance because it does it does uh, try to at least to explain how we got into the dilemmas in which we find ourselves today. And perhaps that in itself can be uh, an empowering thing to do. And after all, this is what we do best. You know, we are historians and so uh, we write history and we hope that people are going to read these books and that they're going to draw their consequences from, from, from what they have learned. But I think one, you know, in a way, our contemporary political conversation is so much dominated by a, a view that tries to naturalize the word 
world in which we live right now, to take that as the world as it should be. Mm. And I think what historians can do is to explain that this is just one of many possible worlds. Well, the economists, I mean, as a as a trade group, one of the most powerful factions in this country, with all their arcane, uh, dismal science, will they let you in on this conversation? Or, or I mean, one senses in the general public discussion, we're all supposed to believe that we're somehow recovering slowly from the, the that unfortunate uh, coincidence of, you know. Uh, bad events in 07 and 08, but we're doing fine, and, and there's nothing fundamental to be discussed here. Yeah, I, well, first, I don't think the conversation is owned by The Economist. Um, I think it's a public conversation. And the re- my other sense is that, you know, the public can't wait for the academics to save them. You know, we, we do projects that we think are socially relevant and that we hope will actually help push forward the public discourse. Um, but ultimately, the project of actually improving people's lives is a public project. And that's where we're simply citizens who want to see a better nation and a better world. Last word, Sven Beckert. Right. I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. Thank you both. Thank you for the work, your work. Uh, we've all been reading these books with, uh, with a kind of exhilaration, I must say. It, it sounds so real. Uh, and thank you. For, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Sven Becker's book is The Empire of Cotton. I think just Empire of Cotton. Craig Wilder's is Ebony and Ivy. You can find a lot more on our website, radioopensource.org, about the hidden story of slavery at Harvard, with pages straight from the 18th century archives, and more of the voices of freed slaves from the Library of Congress. We're going out on Hans Zimmer's soundtrack from the movie... 12 Years a Slave. Our show was produced this week by Max Larkin and Connor Gillies with help from Rebecca Panovka and Maria Jose Fabre. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our benign overlord. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs>